Welcome to an Asia Rising lecture recording. The lecture that you're about to hear was recorded at the second annual Australia-China Forum in Shanghai, co-hosted by La Trobe University and East China Normal University. The topic of discussion was China-Australia relations, affluence, influence and soft power. The speakers in order are Professor Nick Bisley from La Trobe Asia, La Trobe University, Professor Chen Hong from the Australian Studies Centre, East China Normal University, Professor Ho Min Yue from the Australian Studies Centre, East China Normal University, and Associate Professor James Leibold from Politics and Philosophy at La Trobe University. It starts off with an introduction from Professor Chen Hong and was recorded on the 21st of November 2017 at the East China Normal University in Shanghai. Yeah. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to ECNU. Welcome to uh, uh, the second annual conference, uh, the, the second annual forum between China and Australia. As we know, actually, La Trobe University and East China Norm University have been partners, long-standing partners, for almost uh, 30 years. Okay, and throughout the 30 years, uh, the two organizations within our two universities, in particular, La Trobe Asia Asian Studies and also Australian Studies Program or Center in my university, we have been closely working together to promote mutual understanding and partnership between our two countries. As we know, in the recent years, our two countries have been having this very constructive relationship between ourselves. But also, in the recent months, there have also been some difficulties and upheavals uh, coming up. So I think actually this is indeed a very important chance or opportunity for us to face and confront these difficulties and to discuss our differences and try to reach uh, mutual understanding. Uh, China-Australia Forum or the annual China-Australia Forum between our two universities is a very important uh, second track uh, people-to-people diplomacy uh, forum. And on the other hand, it is also a kind of dialogue between our two think tanks, Natural Asia and Australian Studies in East China Normal University. So today we have got uh, scholars from La Trobe University, from Shanghai University, from other universities, and of course uh, from Gansu, even, and also from uh, uh, East China Normal University. We have got teachers, students, and we have got La Trobe University Shanghai office representative coming here. So indeed, firstly, my uh, our warm welcome to everyone, and uh, second, uh, let's, uh, without much further ado, let's uh, start our first uh, talk, who is actually, uh, which is go- uh, going to be delivered by Professor Nick Bisley. I don't need to make any introduction of Nick. He's a very familiar face. If you read Australian newspapers, the conversation, for example, you can see his uh, comment, his uh, face quite often. The ABC, you know, he's often being interviewed. So anyway, Nick, please. Thank you, Chen. Um, both for your kind introduction, uh, but also for hosting this, the second uh, annual uh, China-Australia Forum. Um, We had a very successful initial forum a little over 12 months ago, and we hope that it will become a regular feature, both of the interactions between our two universities, but also as part of the broader dialogue between um, Australia and China. Um, As Chen said, it's, it's been an interesting year in the Australia-China relationship. In fact, when I think back to that meeting we held uh, in September last year, um, it feels feels like it was a lot longer than 12 months ago in terms of 
um, where where things have travelled, and not and not only because Mr. Trump was elected, although I think that's part of it. Um, I think the all of us, I think, who watch the Australia-China relationship closely, have been quite surprised by um, how the relationship has travelled in the intervening period since we last met. Um, what I want to do in my remarks is is really three things. I want to firstly um, provide a bit of a sketch about the state of the relationship and to say a little bit about um, where I think it is at. Uh, I, I'll be speaking principally from the sort of Australian perspective and talk about the Australian government's perspective on all of this. Um, as you probably know, the mood in Canberra towards Beijing has soured quite noticeably. So I'll, in my, the second part of my comments, I want to explain why I think Canberra has soured on Beijing to some degree. So what are the reasons why things have become more, I think, difficult between the two countries? Um, and in my final comments, I want to point out some things to watch in the future. So point out some things to look at to give you a sense as to what we might expect. Um, is this the new normal, as people like to say, in terms of the relationship? Is it perhaps at a, a, a low point? And we know previously, for example, in 2009, when the relationship was probably at its most difficult, um, things then improved quite swiftly. Um, and so point at some things to look for, to give you a sense as to where the relationship is heading, um, and perhaps point to some areas in which Australia and China might build a more constructive, or build on some, some common interests from, from which they can build uh, a more, I think, a more constructive um, set of relations at the moment. So let's, let me start with where things are at now. I think if you just glance at the Australia-China relationship, at the surface, things look pretty good, um, or at least reasonable. So we had a, a quite successful visit from Premier Li Keqiang earlier in the year, in which, you know, whilst there were no big agreements reached, the mood seemed quite positive. Um, trade continues to grow, it continues to be the centrepiece of the relationship. Um, just when you thought Australian trade with China couldn't get any more valuable, it has increased by 8% in the past year. Um, and then the missing piece of the puzzle in some respects, that is investment, so investment from China into Australia, is also growing. So that's something that has historically lagged the trading relationship. Um, the thing that everyone in this room is most interested in, which is education, continues to be a very, very positive um, relationship. Chinese, the numbers of Chinese students in Australian educational institutions, both schools, universities and colleges continues to grow. And more recently, tourism has been added to this. So China is now, I think, the biggest source of tourists in Australia. The recent Asian summit season, uh, there were positive bilateral meetings between Prime Minister Turnbull, Li Keqiang and uh, 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 Xi Jinping. So at, at the surface level, things seem quite positive. And yet, as I, as I said earlier, I think Canberra has clearly soured on China, and it's certainly taken a much sharper line towards the People's Republic in its declaratory policy. So that's to say the formal speeches and comments made by senior officials, I think, have spelled out a series of quite noticeable and quite considered decisions that the government's taken to be more critical about China. Um, and I'll just draw your attention to a couple of these, and we can perhaps talk in more detail about them during the discussion. Um, but we began to see, I think, this sharper line being taken earlier this year in a speech that 
Prime, uh, Foreign Minister Julie Bishop gave in Singapore at the, the Fullerton Lecture, which is part of the lead up to the annual Shangri-La Dialogue held later in the year, um, in which a number of things were said, but one, perhaps the one that seemed to stand out most glaringly was um, a statement that effectively China could only really develop if it became a democracy and that the rules-based order which Australia has taken to its heart in its formal policy statements, its um, Defence White Paper and others, was in fact a liberal rules-based order, and that this liberal rules-based order was being challenged by China. Um, and that was pro probably the most um, full-throated uh, articulation of the sort of values component that Australia, that Australian officials saw as part of the sort of broader international environment that, that was being challenged by China. And, and I don't think since then we've seen quite such a strong values component put in Australian, uh, the declaratory side of Australian policy. So the second element of this, the second feature, or sorry, second example of this um, harder line came from Prime Minister Turnbull's speech at the Shangri-La Dialogue, uh, which I think is probably the most important speech an Australian Prime Minister has given on foreign policy in many years. Um, it was very, very carefully crafted. It had many dimensions to it, and we, if, you want, if you'd like to, we can discuss it in further details. But again, just thinking particularly about China, we saw for the first time mention, the, the government mentioned, sorry, the Prime Minister mentioned concern that Australia had about coercion, corruption, and essentially aggression in a Chinese foreign policy. Now, it was very carefully worded to, to not be directly critical to say, you are being coercive, China. But it was indirect and pretty clear who was um, being spoken about. Uh, the start of his speech began with the, the reference that Lee Kuan Yew made when Singapore was established to say, um, big fish, that, that for Singapore, when it was established in 1965, it was concerned with a world in which Big fish, big fish eat little fish, and little fish eat shrimp. Uh, and then Turnbull used this image, essentially, as the backdrop of his comments. Of course, not saying it, but the implication being China's a big fish that's going to be eating little fish, um, and that this was unacceptable. And then more recently, Defence Minister Maurice Payne at the Seoul Security Dialogue um, also sort of underscored this concern about China, referring to, <coughs> excuse me, the rules-based order. Um, and, and particularly actually said very directly that China was not playing by the rules of the game. So we see in, in formal policy, and I, I would emphasize at the moment, all of this um, sort of shifting of the mood in Canberra is really at the formal signaling policy stage. Not, it hasn't yet turned into significant changes in substantive policy. And I'll, I'll come back to that for the moment. But. Um, so what lies behind this? What is it that Canberra is worried about? What is it that is animating these concerns? Um, and I think that there are probably three main categories of concern that you can point to. So there are three main things that are bothering Canberra. Uh, the first, and, and these are not in order of importance, but just in the order they came out of my head. Uh, the first is a concern about the sort of that that. Uh, phrase, I guess, that Maurice Payne used, the kind of rules of the game. That is to say that China, Canberra is concerned that China's behaviour is unsettling the established rules of the road in Asia. And what, but what is it particularly that, that um, is meant by that? Because I think Australia likes to use um, 
a concern about the rules-based order as a kind of code for saying we're not happy with Chinese behavior, but it's never quite clear what is meant by that. That's the implication is that China isn't playing by the rules, but so what rules are, uh, are not being followed? And I think there's a number of concerns that, that seem to be front of mind in Canberra. Um, one is that for really since the late 1970s, the principal approach to international relations in East Asia was one of restraint and caution and talking first and doing things second. Um, and, and using force and using means that are, that are not consensual to advance your interests was generally not pursued. And Canberra feels that China is now moving away from that more restrained approach to its foreign relations and is unsettling a norm of restraint in the region. The second, um, I think, relates within this broad concern around order and institutions is that the underlying... It, this is in the idea of... This is in the minds of Canberra. I'm not, not saying this is correct. This is how things are viewed in Canberra. The view is also that there is a set of international rules and norms and patterns of behaviour which China is now breaking. And that in doing so, it is going to create, this is what Canberra fears, going to create a region in which the role of institutions, norms and laws is no longer as important and instead what will become the predominant way of managing the region's relations is through power. So where in the past we've had a restrained set of behaviour following norms and rules, we are now entering into a realm that in which power and might will make right um, and that rules will only follow after that. Not to say we're there yet, but what they feel is that we're heading down that path. So that's when the government talk, when the Australian government talks about a rules-based order, um, partly they're talking about the general status quo and we don't like the status quo being changed, but in particular they're concerned about these patterns of behaviour that have been established for, for probably four decades or so that are beginning to change and that present a much more potentially uh, risky environment for a country like Australia, which doesn't have a large amount of power. Uh, I think one of the most significant features of, of Asia's international politics is that it's a region with a small number of very, very large powers and then a large number of quite small powers and very little in between. So that's concern number one is about order and, in, and the role of rules and institutions. The second and it follows from this, is concerns about security and the changing balance of power. Um, and here, these worries are more um, indirect, or they're sort of longer-run concerns. But basically, the, the underlying point is that for around four decades or so, there has been a, a settled and accepted balance of power in Asia that has provided, in conventional security terms, a very stable, peaceful environment that has been very beneficial for everyone, but particularly beneficial for a country like Australia that finds securing, that does and will always find securing its convention, its national interests challenging given how big it is and its limited resources and population. Um, by entering, again, this is Canberra's point of view, as China has begun to militarize, uh, sorry, modernize its military as it's begun to develop a capacity to protect and advance its interests further from its shores, um, that is beginning to change that settled balance of power and creating for Australia an increased sense of vulnerability. 
um, we saw in the 2016 white paper um, an Australian government that is committed to a, the biggest expansion of military capabilities since uh, outside of wartime, um, and it has done so, I think, as a very direct result of that growing sense of insecurity. The difference now, I think, is you are seeing the government articulate those concerns publicly, where in the past they'd felt the need to keep those quiet. And then the third concern um, that is front of mind in Canberra is about interference in Australia um, and concerns both about direct efforts by the People's Republic of China to influence Australia's domestic affairs um, and to do so in an opaque, indirect and clandestine manner. Um, And there's a number of different things that you can point to, but I think this is something that has become a really sharp political issue in Australia and has become very visible and has directly fed into this sense of concern that the government is articulating. So it it was notable that in um, Prime Minister Turnbull's speech, he talked about interference in the affairs of others. He's talking about corruption in Australia. Um, It's not just a concern more broadly. Um, And again, given time, I I won't go into these in detail, and I know Jim is going to be talking a little bit about this shortly, but what does this interference comprise of? As the perception in Canberra, as you're seeing attempts to interfere in um, directly in the political process, you're seeing attempts to interfere in uh, university life. So Chinese students are the biggest source of um, international student enrolments in Australian universities, and we've seen very visible um, a number, small number, but but have become quite high-profile examples where um, it is perceived that uh, students either directly influenced by um, or taking their cues from um, the embassy or the consulate are disrupting what would be other, otherwise be the ordinary um, exchange of event, exchange of views and, and educational process on Australian campuses, and underneath that, you know unsettling the um, basic principle of academic freedom, freedom of expression and the like. Um, We've seen reported in the media efforts to influence research priorities and potentially um, uh, develop dual-use technology with um, the the program that's got the most press, uh, the UNSW Torch program. Um, And then finally, we've also seen or heard reported stories about uh, direct interference in Um, the day-to-day life of Chinese-Australian citizens. So this is stories of Chinese-Australian citizens being receiving phone calls from the consulate or from the embassy or from officials at any rate in one of those two locations saying, um, don't go to the Falun Gong concert. Um, We'd prefer if you didn't place that ad or accept that ad from a Falun Gong representative in your newspaper because we think this is counter to to what you should be doing. Um, And so all of these things together... Um, that sense of inter- Chinese interference or the PRC interference in Australia, concerns about security and the broader concerns about uh, regional order, um, have brought to the surface this much more critical um, perspective from the government. So why now? So why has this happened? Because in some respects, none of this is new. China has been growing rapidly for a long period of time. Um, you know, if the, the, perhaps the, the single issue that is pointed to most when people are talking about concerns about Chinese behaviour in the region, um, and particularly the sort of what some describe as aggressive behaviour, and that is the South China Sea disputes and the um, island building programs in the South China Sea, uh, that's been going on for a long time. That's not new. It began in 2012. Um, so why begin to, to take a strong position now? And again, I think there's a number of reasons here. Um, <clears throat> the first 
and I think it, I, I try to go for as long as possible without mentioning this guy's name, but it's difficult not to in this circumstance. The first is, of course, because of the election of Donald Trump. Um, although I do, I do feel in the teaching of international relations at the moment, any, any, any issue care to mention will somehow circle its way back to Washington, D.C. in the election of Donald Trump, whether you're talking about wool prices or, or militarization in the South China Sea. What has the election of Mr. Trump got to do with Australia becoming more critical of China, publicly more critical of China? Um, and I think there's two things here. One is Trump's election was an absolute shock to the system of countries who are allies of the United States and particularly countries who are like Australia and Japan, particularly dependent on the US from a security point of view. Um, we have suddenly realized that um, the US may not always be there for us and that we perhaps have been complacent in assuming that the US would always think about itself and its role in the region and its interests in quite the same way as it always had. Um, so the, the, the shock to the system that brings Australia to its senses, if you like, then suddenly realised, then has sharpened the view in Canberra or sharpened the realisation that Canberra is facing a region that is changing and changing very quickly and in which, because of the dependence it has on the US, um, it may not be particularly well equipped to respond to. So I think there's, that has suddenly made all of this um, being thrown into much sharper relief than it might otherwise. The second, and this is, I think, a direct result of Trump, is that the Australian government, like many others, has, is trying to convince the Trump administration to continue to behave the way it has in the past. So, I mean, and, and has been doing this both privately and publicly. Um, so that the, the Julia Bishop speech, which I think is pro probably the most sharp in terms of its language about China, and most controversial in some respects because of that, uh, was directed almost exclusively at Washington and was a very public plea to Washington about the need to um, maintain the role that it has played in the past. But in so doing, so in trying to communicate with Washington your concerns, what you do, of course, is reveal those concerns publicly to everyone else. Um, whereas I think in the past, if there had been a greater level of confidence in the US, a greater level of confidence in being able to reach the key people in the US to know how US policy in the region was being formulated and who had the influence, you wouldn't be seeing those sort of things in public. And so that has unwittingly raised the temperature. I think there's also an important role being played by individuals. It, it just, it, it is um, not, I think, by accident that the hardening public line on China has occurred at a time in which in all of the key offices of Australian government, so in the Prime Minister's office, uh, in the Foreign, Department of Foreign Affairs, in ONA, so that's the Office of National Assessments, this Prime Minister's, uh, it's in the Prime Minister's office, but it's a peak analytical intelligence agency um, in the Department of Defence. You have key decision makers who essentially have a very similar view on China, where in the past you saw differences of, of, of opinion about China and about the region more generally, not huge divergences, but differences that resulted in, I think, a greater contestation of ideas and produced a more sort of middle-of-the-road articulation of Australian policy. I think now there is, there is a clear convergence of views. And now partly I think that is contextual so that the environment has created a, a sharper view over which there's a greater degree of, of commonality. 
But I think it is also the case that a lot of these people have been working on China for a while and have reasonably, I mean, not to say they're hawks in, in a cliche sense, but they have a, a um, more critical view of China, I think, than people, than their predecessors. Um, I think you also can't underestimate the third reason, which is there is a growing perception in Australia, in, in the media and in public debate more generally, that China is a worry, that China is something to be concerned about, whether that is predatory behaviour in the South China Sea, whether that's Chinese influence of the kind that was reported often in fairly sensationalist terms in the media, um, on television, radio and elsewhere. Um, and even in that most Australian of preoccupations, real estate, um, the sense that, that China, there is, a, there is a sort of worrying Chinese influence um, out there. And I think partly that it also speaks to an underlying racial dimension to all of this, which has made the discussion about China, the China-Australia relationship that much more complex. Um, as we all know, Australia has a vexed issue about race um, and, and certainly a far from glorious history in terms of our attitude and approach to non-white Australians and non-whites in general. And I think that has exacerbated this sense that there is a Chinese menace about which we should be concerned. Um, and finally, I think why, why now? I think Australia, like a lot of countries, felt that um, the, the South China Sea disputes was firstly the most visible form of a, of a China that was unsettling the region and doing things that it previously hadn't done in controversial ways. Um, but that there was an international legal ruling that found fairly firmly against China, in fact, surprisingly um, strong ruling from the arbitral tribunal. Uh, and that there were, you know, Australia was one of many countries that said, we're not a claimant, but we think the decision is binding and we ask for all the parties to, to accept it. Um, and I think over the 18 months, not quite 18 months, but nearly 18 months since that decision, I think Australia has been genuinely dismayed at what has essentially been a decision by Beijing to completely ignore the decision in its entirety. I think the, the, the hope had been that um, China might moderate what it was doing, shift its tone, shift its attitude. So I think that that sense of um, disappointment, if you like, I think feeds into that. So the time element here is important. Okay, I've been speaking for longer than I'd intended. Let me finish by saying what to look for to get a sense as to whether where we're at now is, is a, down, a down point and there's an upswing coming. Is the trajectory going to continue to go down? Or is this, where, is this a kind of new normal, as I said? Um, in two days' time, the foreign policy white paper will be released by Julie Bishop, long, long delayed. Um, I'm confidently told the word liberal will not appear in front of rules-based order rules-based order will appear a lot. Um, more than that, I haven't been able to get more than that, but I suspect it, it will look and sound very similar to the Defence White Paper. I'd be surprised if there was a significant shift away from that. And I think you'll see a continuation of the kind of language that we've seen in the Prime Minister's, of, in the Prime Minister's Office and in the Foreign Minister's Office about the region as a whole and particularly about China. But that's the first, first data point to look at. The second is the Belt and Road Initiative. I think that the BRI um, or OBOR or whatever, whatever it gets rebranded to next. I like BRI just because it's easy to say. Australia so far is, is, I think, has a fairly muddled approach to BRI at the moment. I think it's not quite sure how to respond to it. And I, I've got a theory as to why that's the case, but I won't bore you with that at the moment. 
but I think how Australia responds to Belt and Road, that's to say, will it continue to essentially see it more through what I would describe as the China critic lens rather than uh, the, the sort of China opportunity lens? And will tell us a bit about where the, where the mood in, China, in Canberra is, is headed. Essentially, you know, there, there is in Australia kind of simplifying a bit, but there's two main camps on China. There are the, the, those who, who are the sort of security, the, 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 the China hawks, those who basically see in everything that China does a potential risk concern. Um, and then there are those who see China as an enormous opportunity. You know, panda huggers, panda bashers, I don't know, call it what you will. At the moment, the sceptics are, are prevailing in terms of Australia's approach to BRI. And I don't just mean security sceptics, but sceptics about whether the investment and allocation of um, resources that's going to come from BRI is sensible, all of that. At the moment, that's prevailing. But watch, watch what Australia does on BRI and you'll get a pretty good sense as to what it thinks about China. The final thing to, to watch for is, of course, domestic politics and the ongoing soap opera that is Australian politics. Um, the Australian Labor Party, I think, is sensing some kind of, um, elect not necessarily electoral opportunity, but I think it sees in China policy particularly, and Asia policy more generally, some scope for product differentiation between itself and the coalition. Uh, Penny Wong, the current foreign minister, has been doing a series of set-piece speeches outlining, beginning to outline a potential ALP vision for the region. It's still in its pretty early stages. Uh, but there does seem to be hints that the government, that a potential Labor government might take a different position towards China. Uh, and certainly, the, if conversations I've had with people in the US Embassy in Canberra are anything to go by, Washington is very worried <laughs> about what the ALP might represent. Um, it is virtually certain that over the next 12 to 18 months, there'll be a change in, in government of one form or another. Um, continuing our trend of, I think, governments that last about 15 months on average since 2010. So much for two, stable two-party democracy. Um, but I think the domestic political volatility, you'll see, you'll see China figure in that story to some degree. And to finish on a positive note, um, at the most recent summit season, particularly at APEC, I think you saw um, two really different visions for Asia's trading future. And by that, what I mean about the rules about trade, how trade will be managed. Trump presented essentially a, a turn away from the traditional embrace of liberal multilateral principles and said the days of big trade deals in, in the world and from, from the US point of view are over. And it's um, instrumental, bilateral, short-term deficit-focused deals that the US is interested in. And frankly, no one else in the region is interested in them. Uh, Xi Jinping at the same APEC CEO summit stood up and said what he's been saying since January, which is countries that close themselves off, countries that don't embrace open economic uh, globalization are um, doing themselves a disservice at best, if not you know, um, dooming their future. And I think allies of the US, ones that may be unsettled by Chinese, the rise of Chinese military and um, military power and its broader security behavior are the same allies who are strongly invested in a liberal economic trading order and potentially see from an Australia-China point of view the potential for China to lead and to be an under sort of undergirding mechanism to protect and sustain a more liberal trading future 
and working towards that goal might actually be something that could help, I think, get Australia-China relations on a more positive track. Because I think at the moment, the tone of the relationship is... is <laughs> Jim's getting a phone call from the, the foreign minister. Um, <laughs> Uh, but the, the tone of the relationship at the moment is, is, it's not as bad as 2009, but we're heading in that direction. Um, I think we need to take clear steps um, to, to improve that tone, to take some of the heat out of the relationship. And the common interests that the two countries share in economically open Asia um, is very strong. That leadership is not going to come from the US, and it's something that we both the two countries, but I think more broadly across the region, whether you're an ally of the US or not, it's not relevant. It's, are you interested in an open economic trading future? And if so, then we can work collaboratively. And I think it's that sort of thing that the two countries need to work on unless, uh, with less emphasis on the more sinister fears that they have, or certainly that Australia has of China. Sorry, I've spoken for longer than I'd intended, but thank you for your indulgence. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Nick, for your very interesting and insightful talk. Um, yes, I really do agree with you in that, actually. Uh, uh, I think, actually, indeed, actually, our ties are actually too strong for us to squander and to break. So, indeed, actually, a lot of effort should be made to uh, uh, fortify our links. So, the next speaker is uh, me. <laughs> And uh, I'll be speaking actually along with the line of uh, uh, what uh, Nick have touched upon in his uh, talk. So, um, and uh, the uh, presentation is uh, is entitled as influence, uh, influence, and soft power, and in particular with its relevance to China-Australia relations. So, as we know, for decades. China and Australia have been close partners in terms of trade, international education, tourism, and innovative service industry. Uh, China remains Australia's number one um, trade partner. According to statistics released by Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in 2006, bilateral trade between the two countries was uh, 155.2 billion Australian dollars about 23.1% of Australia's foreign trade. Uh, in comparison, Australia's uh, trade with its second trade partner, the United States last year, was uh, uh, 64.3 billion Australian dollars. China was also Australia's biggest destination of export, with an export volume of goods and services worth 93 billion Australian dollars last year, and an import from, from China of 62.1 billion uh, Australian dollars. On uh, December the 20th, 20th uh, last year, 20, uh, 2016, the uh, China-Australia Free Trade Agreement took effect. In words of the spokesman of uh, China's Ministry of, of uh, uh, Commerce, so I quote, with a step-by-step -step implementation of the FTA, more of the quality products of the two countries will enter the markets of each other. There is strong potential of uh, further development of bilateral trade in the future and uh, more business opportunities for Australian businesses to carry out trade, investment and other cooperation in China. During the visit of uh, 
uh, Australia's Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull in April last year uh, at a banquet he held in Shanghai in the city for uh, almost 2,000 Chinese and Australian uh, guests, among whom I was also present. He spoke highly of the huge potentiality that our two countries had for each other in areas like energy and uh, resources collaborations, uh, economic reform and transition, tourism and uh, uh, education. He described the uh, nature of the cooperation between our two countries as one of innovative agility, his pet, pet phrase, which has been interpreted here in China as meaning a promising swift development. In March uh, 2017, China's, as uh, Nick mentioned, China's pri- uh, pr- premier, uh, Li Keqiang, made his uh, first visit uh, overseas this year to Australia and New Zealand, okay. during which time he assured uh, Australian and uh, Chinese business leaders of China's determination to maintain and promote free trade and global trade system. And he said China is willing to cooperate and collaborate with, with Australia to inject sustaining vitality to the development of world trade. So these words are sustained by the fact that in the three months between January and March this year, 2017, there was an increase of bilateral trade volume of uh, uh, 35.4%. In terms of international education in 2016, 24 billion Australian dollars flowed from international students into the Australian economy. The Australian population is about 24 million. So that means each Australian citizen benefits to 1,000 Australian dollars from uh, international education. There are 150,000 Chinese students studying in different education sectors in Australia, far overtaking students from any other countries. Uh, China positions Australia as uh, its uh, comprehensive uh, strategic partner, alongside with countries such as the UK, France, and New Zealand. By the way, Canada is China's uh, strategic partner, without the word comprehensive. However, it was exactly in the seemingly very promising and optimistic atmosphere that the temperature of the bilateral relations suddenly started to drop perplexing to many observers, including many people uh, present today. On uh, uh, June the 5th, uh, 2017, the ABC and the Fairfax media concertedly put out a report about China. In the morning, uh, the Age and the Sydney Morning Herald published the first installment of the uh, report while the ABC in the evening broadcast the pre-announced, therefore much-anticipated story on its very famous investigative program, Four Corners. And Four Corners, obviously, is a very good investigative news program, well-known for its revelation of uh, news stories of good value or shocking value. The uh, story uh, is called Power and Influence, was indeed like a bombshell, shattering the previously uh, previously, uh, warm and uh, trusting relationship between uh, the two countries. The ABC website has a very good, very high-quality, on-demand page, webpage, which carries its latest programs online almost instantly. 
So many of my friends in Australia on that night text texted me on uh, WeChat, uh, so asking for my opinion and comment, and I didn't reply uh, to their queries at once. Still trying to recover from my shock after finishing it on my computer. The Four Corners program, along with the Fairfax uh, reports, I believe, was misinformed, misjudging, misjudging, and therefore misleading. It plants till this day seeds of mistrust among many Australians towards China and a very uh, friendly Chinese people in Australia, detrimental to the healthy development of understanding and collaboration, which till that day had been optimally growing. A strong sense of suspicion began to lurk among the general public, those of Chinese ethnicity, business people, investors, home buyers, Australian permanent residents, naturalized Australian citizens, and even those very, very young students have fallen prey to this insidious and venomous distrust. Tinker, tailor, soldier, spy, or shall we say banker, investor, student, spy. So let me give, give one example. The Four Corners program starts with a sensational scenario. An ONA Office of National Assessment uh, officer, uh, Roger Uren's home was searched by ASIO officers who found classified Australian government files in his possession. The program mentioned the fact that he was married to a Chinese-born woman called Sherry Yan with an implication that's very much uh, that's very much stretches people's imagination. So I quote from the program: Sherry Yan is very closely connected with some of the most Asio. <laughs> Sherry Yan is very closely connected with some of the most powerful and influence, uh, influential families and networks in China. Once you know that, you don't need to know much more. But indeed, we do want to know more. What do you mean? Okay, this innuendo is too sinister for us to overlook. What on earth is implied between that home search and also China? The uh, program skillfully avoids that question after indicating that ASIO was investigating Yuren for the uh, possession of the files. Chris Yuman said political donations by two Chinese-born businessmen uh, to uh, the two major political parties in Australia were linked to the uh, Chinese Communist Party, once again with no substantial evidence. The sudden switch to Chao Chao Wen and uh, Huang Xiaomo adroitly uh, insinuates a non-existing link between the investigation on Roger Yuren and the two, and the two Chinese, uh, Chinese, uh, Chinese-born business, leader, uh, business people. In both the Four Corners program, and also the age SMH stories, we can see no such link at all. But we are quickly grabbed and immersed by the two conspiratorial, uh, conspiratorial the donors, seemingly with vested interest. Nick McKenzie, the uh, reporter who made the investigation, described how Chao Chao Wen donated uh, 20 million Australian dollars to the notoriously ugly new building <laughs> on the UTS campus, and how he also bought, uh, he, how he also spent seventy million Australian dollars to buy an expensive mansion for himself. So even if conspir- uh, conspiracy theorists might assume a hidden 
uh, 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 ulterior agenda on Mr. Chow's donation that he was actually having his uh, very sinister de- design to build an ugly building in a beautiful <laughs> Australian u- university. But why his purchase of this expensive home was cited as suspicious? So maybe, you know, we believe actually maybe it's, it is people's antipathy against uh, uh, the rich, towards the rich, uh, in particular, Australian hatred of the tall poppies has been taken advantage of and made against Chow and Huang's uh, uh, case. But wait, what was their case again? <laughs> okay, so what had they done, at all, uh, had they done, done wrong at all? So the second uh, example is about the, uh, the young students' welcome to uh, Premier Li Keqiang's visit. It is uh, said that the Chinese students took buses arranged by the Chinese embassy in Canberra to welcome Premier Li. So uh, the uh, program uh, interviewed uh, Lu Ping Lu, who is, uh, who is the uh, president of the Chinese Students and Scholars Association of the University of Canberra. So Lu Ping Lu was quoted as saying uh, that uh, the Chinese embassy, they support us or sponsor us by uh, providing flags, food. Then Nick McKenzie said, the flags? Lupin Lu said, yes. Nick McKenzie then said, the food? Lupin Lu said, transportation. Nick McKenzie uh, then said, transportation. Lupin Lu then said, legal help as well. Uh, lawyer, for that event, for that day, that was actually the, the, answer, uh, the, the question from uh, Nick McKenzie. Lupin Lu then said, yes, because there is politics involved. Sometimes there may be conflict with the police. Then Nick McKenzie instantly followed uh, by saying, by asserting that the Chinese government and its proxies monitor Chinese students' organ- associations at most Australian universities. I really don't know why, how Mr. McKenzie reached that conclusion from this interview, okay, from that interchange. The uh, Chinese embassy subsidized and supported financially or in-kind students' welcome party to the visiting premier or any other Chinese business or political leader. And the students were not coerced against their will to go to the welcome party. And why was this interpreted as endangering Australia's sovereignty? On the 28th September 2014, during his visit to New York, the Indian Prime Minister Modi delivered a speech at the Madison Square, uh, uh, Garden, Square, Garden, Garden Square uh, in New York. More than 18,500 Indian expats from all over America and also uh, Canada, swarmed to the venue to give him a rock star welcome and listen to his speech. When President Obama visited Havana in March 2016, hundreds of Cuban Americans flew back to uh, uh, Cuba, and they were there welcoming him, listening to his speech, watching him watch a baseball match. The following accusation in the documentary against Huang Xiangmo and uh, other ethnic Chinese community members who maintain a close affinity to China are likewise plausible. So for decades after 1901, Australia still refle- uh, referred to uh, the UK as the home country and the pledged allegiance. The sustaining link with the mother country poses no threat to the host country as long as there is no conflict of interest. And other students, the very, very young students who are studying in uh, Australia. So suddenly in recent months, Young Chinese students have become a focus of attention for, for the media and even, in some cases, 
uh, for some uh, government officials' comment. Uh, the impression is that in three separate cases, Chinese students consistently disrupt the academic sovereignty of Australia's higher education institution, uh, institutions. Challenges to lecturers and professors are no longer regarded as praiseworthy acts of independence and critical thinking, but instances of contrivance or contrivances to impose ideological bias on Australian uh, academics. But is that so? So, in the case of the Monash University uh, incidents in May this year, there was an online test of uh, human resources of uh, human resources. Uh, 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 the course, the uh, co- the, the code name is uh, MG two four three uh, two three four four one four zero for students from uh, Australia, China, India, and other countries. So one of the country, uh, one one uh, one of the questions in the quiz asks. So what is the com- uh, 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 that there is a common saying in China, that government officials only speak truth when a. So a it says, to not speak the tr- uh, to not speak the truth would result uh, in a dismissal. Uh, the government officials only speak truth when a to not speak the truth would result in dismissal, and b they are making decisions in a group setting, and c they had their uh, their statements approved by the party, and d they are drunk or careless, and the correct answer is they are drunk or careless. Nobody would think it is academic freedom to speak of a government of government officials in general as liars when sober. This it is academic freedom. If it is a joke made by the lecturer in private, it will be uh, uh, it will result in uh, being criticized as being senseless. And uh, when it is in the form of a quiz, where only one answer is considered correct, it in itself is an imposition of bias and untruths. The two other incidents involved two lecturers in the University of Sydney and the University of Newcastle, whose uh, understanding of a number of things related to China differ from those of their students. Okay, that's fine.、Uh, okay, and also in that quiz, there was also an answer.、Uh, there, there was also a, an, uh, a question saying that what is the hurdle for China's development, and the correct answer is a lack of.、Uh, Uh, trained and uh, uh, trained and experienced uh, managerial talents, and actually, you know, the world recognizes China as the world's largest supply of educated workers. So, really, you know, such a kind of quiz or uh, uh, test, actually, really, you know, can that be regarded as educational material and to be educating, uh, uh, to be regarded as educative to our students、uh, from all over the world? So.、Um, In the University of Newcastle, for example, when the lecturer insists in many instances in the classroom or and in tests on calling Taiwan and Hong Kong、uh, uh, as being two、uh, separate, independent, sovereign countries, the Chinese students confronted him. From the recording taken、uh, during the conversation, it is obvious that the student was attempting to discuss and persuade、uh, the teacher not to adopt a lopsided way of speech. When actually the lecturer himself said, "I said it twice today, and I will say that one hundred one thousand times in a threatening tone." So whatever attitude and、uh, opinion the lecturers and students may take, I do agree it is their freedom. 
if people do not agree with their views, they also have the freedom to make challenges. I seriously do not think senior government officials should come out on formal occasions to repudiate the students who are trying to make a case and present their argument. So it was said by some people that by Nick just now that Donald Trump, after Donald Trump took presidency in、uh, the twentieth of、uh, January this year, the world had has been in an era of uncertainties. But what is the certainty <laughs> that they are so fond of? They're so nostalgic of. So why actually? What is so good about that certainty? And what is that certainty? I believe it is、uh, the kind of like a dichotomizing、uh, the、uh, Cold War mindset, which offers them a comfort zone, which they refuse to come out of. It used to be a world of either or situation. You are either with us or against us. So some politicians in the West. Including Australia,、uh, nostalgic of the years of the Obama presidencies, when the pivot to Asia and TPP had been used to form solidarity with traditional allies under the banner of the so-called shared values. Donald Trump's ascension to power makes those politicians tremble. If we remember, actually, if we recall,、uh, John Howard as、uh, as describing. Uh, Donald Trump's sentence as uh, as uh, well thinking of his uh, taking uh, the presidency it makes me tremb- tremble. Indeed, you know those politicians they tremble, fearful of the drastic changes he had been、uh, promising all along. The、uh, you so I totally agree with Nick that actually it is this fear of abandonment, this fear of change. The U.S. withdrawal from the、uh, TPP and also the phone gate inc-、uh, incident make some polit-、uh, political leaders afraid of further abandonment by the U.S. Uh, stress upon the ideological differences between the traditional Australia-USA alliance and and China、uh, would be a way to win America back. So when Senator McCain was visiting Australia in May, in his speech given at the、uh, American Center in the、uh, University of、uh, Sydney, he spared no effort to enlist Australia's loyalty and allegiance to the alliance forged during the Second World War, maintained during the Cold War. And reignited when Obama proposed his pivot to Asia. Some politicians in the West、uh, have been pushing Australia to make choice, a hard choice, between the United States of America and、uh, China. So, in a, a speech I made、uh, in、uh, the New South Wales Parliament in late April, I quoted China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi. In saying that China does not want Australia to make any choice or choices, in fact, I believe China imposes no choice for any country to make. Australia can maintain its security links with the United States while developing a wide range of relations, connectivities with China and other countries. This is a rational choice that we can make. The、uh, speech that speech was translated into in,、uh, into, into Chinese. By a Chinese Australian friend, and was published in one of the most best uh, the, uh, the best-selling Chinese language newspaper in、uh, Australia. Some media in China、uh, tries to characterize Australia as a paper cat, and、uh, in today's uh, the uh, the, uh, the Australian,、uh, there is a, also an article describing this relation as uh, uh, Australia uh, Australia American relations as paper cat. 
behind paper tiger. <laughs> or actually, Australia was a has been uh, described as a belligerent boxing kangaroo. Such attempts do no good to the uh, further and better goals that we share for both our two countries. So China, in fact, also preaches a shared value,、uh, and this value is not shared and manipulated by only a limited number of countries and groups, but by the whole, whole humanity at large. So in doing so, to achieve this goal, I think we need to get rid of the rigidity of outdated mindsets. And be ready to join hands and embrace the future that is ours. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Professor Hu Mingyue from East China Normal University, and also about from Gila to Turnbull. Okay, so let's welcome Professor Hu. Okay, thank you, Chen, and also Nick and Jim.、Uh, I feel very happy. Because older friends meet today, and also we meet some new friends here. And I will focus on, you know, my topic on the Australia's government attitude towards China、uh, in the past few years. Because over the past few years, many things happened between the two nations, and some debates and opinions are non-governmental, as mentioned by、uh, by Nick and Chen as well. Now, for instance, the four corners. And some, some you know the some、uh, negative opinions on the donation of some Australian Chinese in Australia, and also some ideas about the Chinese students studying in Australia,、um, do、uh, you know taking some activities in welcoming Ch-、uh, China's Premier Li Keqiang, and and also、uh, many years ago, the Olympic、uh, torch rehearsal, right. Many many things and already happened between the two nations. But what I want to say is the Australian government attitudes. I think this takes a very important、uh, role for us to know something about the Australian policy. Well, now let's. In order to understand the、uh, the attitudes to,、uh, towards China from Gillard's time. We needed to first of all to take a look at what Gillard said in the United States soon after she took office. Now, in、uh, in this time, March twenty eleven, several months after she took office, she went to the United States and in she addressed the U.S. Congress, in which she said much about the close linkage between the United States and Australia. And she even, you know, said something、uh, to express the Australian loyalty to the United States by saying Australia will stand firm with with our ally. And then, my question after reading this statement is: Can we regard this as odd way with the United States, or cultural to the United States? Because this expression "cultural" has often has often been used by Western commentators to describe other nations or some other people, their response to China. If you are soft to China, and then you'll be described as cultural to China. And even Donald Trump's visit 
recent visit to China has been described by some Western commentators as being curtailed to China because Trump was not tough, was not hard on China this time. And then the second is Australia in the now the second statement is she emphasized the role played by the four nations, the United States, Australia, Japan, and South Korea, in the uh, regional security in East Asia. And then my question is, what about China? What is the role China can play in regional security affairs? And why, uh, can we regard this as um, the lingering of the Australian idea, Australian expectation for a Asia-Pacific NATO? Now, by saying Asia-Pacific NATO, it is a term uh, which emerged in 2001 when Alexander Downer proposed the Four Nations Strategic Dialogue between the United States, Australia, Japan, and South Korea. And then at that time, you know, many international commentators say, well, did these four nations expect to organize that Asia-Pacific NATO or Little NATO in Asia? So that is the question. And then thirdly, uh, she said she encouraged to uh, encourage the United States to be bolder. Now the term she used is be bold. I believed past tense. I believed America could do anything. I believe that too. That was in year 2001. You can do anything today. And then the question I have after reading this statement is, is America not bold? America is bold enough. America has launched a war in many places and toppled many governments. Such kind of country is not bold. Such kind of country needs to be encouraged to be bolder. I can't understand why she said that. And then regarding China, the term we can see focused on economy, on economic relations. So in terms of regional security, China is not a contributor, is not a positive factor, is not a positive player in the region. In terms of economy, okay, we can do business together. So my question is, is economy only? Now regarding the relationships with China, is economy only? So that was in 2011. And then apparently, her, uh, her statement in the United States Congress refused to regard China as a contributor to the regional security. And what she said would not discourage the United States from pushing China into a corner. Because the United States in at that period of time was, uh, you know, thinking of, you know, some um, you know, tough measures to deal with the you know, the rise of China, and very soon introduced the rebalance strategy. And then the Gillard administ uh, administration actually underwent changes in its view and attitudes towards China. And it changed very quickly, comparatively speaking, very quickly. 
For instance, in October 2012, the Gillard government released the white paper, which is called in Australia as the ancient white paper. Uh, in this white paper, it states, Australia's alliance with the United States and a strong US presence in Asia will support regional stability, as well China's full participation in regional developments. Now, if you compare this statement about China's role in regional security with uh, Gillard's statement in the United States a year ago, you can see the change. Uh, still ambiguous, uh, but anyway, mentioned you know, the role that can be played uh, by China. And then secondly, the White Paper said, we welcome China's rise, not just because of the economic benefits for, China, for, China, uh, for Chinese uh, people, but also because the benefits for the people throughout the region. And also uh, uh, the rise strengthens uh, the international uh, system. And then thirdly, the White Paper claims, this is not a world in which anything like a containment policy can work or be in our national interests. Now remember, if you take a look at, this is in, in October, a few days afterwards, when, she would, when Gillard was in, in the Laos to attend the uh, Asian meeting, she stated, we've got deep relationships with China at uh, every level, we will continue to build on those deep relationships and we do not support and do not engage in a containment policy. Now, you know, attention has to be paid to the second part of the statement. We do not support and do not engage in a containment strategy. Now, if you compare the terminologies in the white paper about Australia's you know, policy or attitudes toward China in relation to the containment approach, the, the attitudes and, uh, and policies in the white paper is not clear enough. It is still ambivalent. This is not a time for, an, for containment. But it didn't directly say, we are not interested in the containment of China. We will not get involved in any attempt for the containing of China, uh, for the containment of China. This is not what I say. Soon after the release of this white paper, uh, Richard Wilcott, she, uh, he was very critical of the white paper in relation to this terminology. And he even raised this question. Why can't we say directly that China can rise peacefully? Why can't we say directly that we are not interested in containing China? After hearing this, partly as a response to Wilcott's criticism, Julia, uh, Julia Gillard released the statement in the Laos on the 5th of November. So it seems that the changes of attitudes and policies of the Australian government is somewhat like the squeeze, the, you know, the squeezing of toothpaste. 
You have to squeeze the paste. And then, bit after bit, different terminologies and will be released and stated. All right, now, in January uh, 2013, the Australian government also released its national security strategy, in which it states, we expect that both the US and China will work hard to maximize the cooperative aspects of their relationships and minimize the com competitive elements. This is balanced. So take no sides, uh, you know, persuade both parties to maximize their cooperation. And secondly, it says, China's military growth is a natural legitimate outcome of its growing economy and broadening interests. The rapidity of that military modernization has given rise to a degree of uncertainty or even sensitivity. But anyway, the first part of the statement uh, in the eyes of many Chinese commentators seems to be uh, well-balanced and uh, appropriately drafted, anyway. Regarding the second one, Stu, uh, it's, uh, it's normal because this is not the view simply shared by Australians. This is the view shared by many other people in the region as well. And then the third statement in relation to China in this document is Australia's alliance with the United States is at, is at the core of our approach to national security. The importance of a deepening of our relationship with China cannot be overstated. So from this uh, uh, document, you can see the Australian government is trying to balance the, the attitudes the terminologies, the statements about both the United States and China, trying to balance the terms in relation to the two nations, which is a, now against this background, Gillard paid a successful visit to China in April 2013. During her visit, the two countries upgraded lead, uh, uh, their relationships to the strategic partnership and also uh, established the annual leadership meeting. The annual leadership meeting, th that's regular annual, annual leadership meeting, that is uh, uh, part of the strategic relationships between the two nations and also concluded some agreements in relation to many other things, especially economic relations. And then we say that the Gillard government also introduced or released the Defence White Paper 2013. Generally speaking, the, defense, the turn of the Defence White Paper 2013 followed the turn of, the, uh, of that document in January 2013. Uh, the Defence White Paper says the relationship between the United States and China, the regions and the globe's two most powerful states, will more than any other single factor determine our strategic environment over coming decades. Now, we pay attention to the mentioning of the two nations, the United States and China. 
openly recognised that these two nations are the most important, the most powerful two nations in the region as well as in the world. And then secondly, the document says, the government does not believe that Australia must choose between its long-standing alliance with the United States and its expanding relationship with China. That is uh, not a new you know, point of view. Uh, this has been, this has been, you know, this statement or this viewpoint has been emphasized and uh, talked about by uh, many or some previous Australian prime ministers, especially uh, John Howard, when he was the prime minister. And then it says the government does not approach China as an adversary. This is very direct. Rather, its policy is aimed at encouraging China's peaceful rise and ensuring that a strategic competition in the region does not lead to conflict. So, not negative terms about China. And then, very soon, Julie Gillard lost power and Tony Abbott succeeded her. And then soon after, um, Tony Abbott took office. It happened the ADIZ episode, uh, Air Defense Identification Zone of China in East China Sea. And then the immediate responses from Australian government is firstly from Bishop. Bishop says, it is unhelpful and won't contribute to regional stability. Australia opposes any coercive or unilateral actions to change the status quo in the East China Sea. Now remember, we have to pay attention to the terms. Coercive unilateral actions. This is a term used by the Japanese and the United States as well to describe what China is doing in East China Sea and South China Sea as well. And this reveals that Australia shares this attitude and viewpoint. Then DFAT calls in the Chinese ambassador Ma Zhaoxu and to listen uh, to Ma Zhaoxu's explanation and also explain to Ma Zhaoxu Australia's concerns. And then now let's look at what Tony Abbott said upon this episode. Tony Abbott said, it is a case of standing up for Australia's values. Now, value diplomacy again emerges. We believe in freedom of navigation and the navigation of the seas, navigation of the air. China trades with us because it is in China's interest to trade with us. We are a strong ally of the United States. We are a strong ally of Japan. Now, if we analyze the statement by, by Abbott, uh, we need to understand and we need to think about uh, this statement in various aspects. Now first, uh, is the navigation and uh, the freedom of navigation of navigation of the sea has been jeopardized, has been negatively affected 
in the East China Sea or South China Sea? No evidence. No, no examples to support that the free, this freedom has been affected. But I only emphasize we, we believe in freedom of navigation and navigation of the sea and air as well. And next, China trades with us because it is in China's interest to trade with us. This is not simply illustrated by Tony Abbott. It's actually deeply in the heart, in the minds of many Australians, including many Australian officials. They strongly believe that the bilateral trade between the two countries benefit both. Of course, this is, a, this is the fact. Any bilateral trade will benefit both. But the point is that in Australia, there has been a debate about uh, who relies more on who. Does Australia rely on China more? Or does China rely on Australia more in terms of bilateral trade? Well, let, if we put this debate aside, anyway, Tony Abbott's statement tells China and the world, we are not afraid of China using economic relations as, as, as a kind of leverage or tool to take some any measures as a revenge, as a, as a retaliation against Australia. But China didn't say anything about that. China has not said anything, say we will take retaliatory actions against Australia by mean by economic means. Yes, of course, some hawkish Chinese commentators, some non-governmental analysts, they will make this you know this suggestion or even propose the you know the Chinese government take retaliatory actions against Australia by economic means. But remember, this suggestion, this proposal, long time was suggested in China. As far as I can remember, after the June 4th event in China in 1989, Australia followed other Western nations and imposed sanctions against China. At that time, some Chinese commentators suggested that China use economic means to take retaliatory actions against Australia. But it didn't happen, it didn't materialize. So why, why did Tony Abbott say this? And then, Next, I don't know whether Tony Abbott purposefully said this or he's simply a layman in terms of diplomacy. By saying we are strong allies of the United States, it's okay, it's the fact that Australia has been an ally of the United States for many years already. But Australia is not an ally of Japan. Yes, in 2007, uh, Australia signed an agreement of security cooperation. That is the declaration for 
for, co uh, for security cooperation between the two nations. But that's, that agreement does not make the two nations, Australia and Japan, two allies. Why, why did he say we are a strong ally of, of Japan? And this is the first time he said that. I don't know whether it's a slip of the tongue or he purposefully said that. And then restrained attitudes afterwards regarding the Tony Abbott government. Tony Abbott has something to do with uh, not simply Japan, but also China and South Korea as well, particularly the free trade agreements with the three nations. He's strongly interested in pushing forward the free trade relationships with the three important uh, East Asian nations. Now, and then continued the Australian approach and the Tony Abbott is continued strengthening relations with uh, Japan while handling China ties with a mixture of caution and expectation. Expectation for the growth of eco economic relations, for the conclusion, for the establishment of free trade relations with China. When in Tokyo, Seoul and Beijing in April 2014, he came to these three nations. Albert expressed the Australian intention of engagement with China, Japan and South Korea. And that Australia would work with all partners to ensure that the region's economic development and strategic stability would continue. This is, you know, midway uh, position. And Albert also said, international friendships are not a zero-sum game. We want better friendship with Japan. We, we also want better friendship with China. We are working on a free trade deal with China. I'm still reasonably optimistic we can succeed there. We want a better friendship with everyone. Now, you, you take a look at the initial statements, attitudes, stances of the Abbott administration after he took office. And the statements in, two, uh, in 2014, you can see the changes of the attitudes. As the changes happened during the Julia Gillard administration. So, uh, it seems the normal way that soon after a new Australian Prime Minister took office, the bilateral relations would undergo fluctuations, would undergo some uh, unhappy things. It happened in Julie, Julie uh, Gillard administration and also happened in uh, actually when, say, uh, Kevin Rudd took office, and previously when John Howard took office in 2000, uh, in 1996. Okay. All right. And then the Defence White Paper last year. The Defence White Paper was actually discussed, proposed, and uh, probably initially made 
in when Tony Abbott was the prime minister. Tony Abbott was actually he he was dismissed and replaced by uh, by Malcolm Tumble. I think maybe in September of 2015, right? Yeah, and then when Tumble took office very soon, the defense white paper was released and announced, and then this defense white paper holds a very negative view about China, as mentioned by uh, Nick Beasley just now. Now let's look at and analyze the terminologies of this defense white paper. The growth of China's national power, including its military modernization, means China's policies and actions will have a major impact on the stability of the Indo-Pacific to 2035. Now, for Australia, the view has been broader, not simply Asia-Pacific, but Indo-Pacific. And the United States also started, uh, has started to mention Indo-Pacific you know, instead of Asia-Pacific. And then the first statement is all right. The second one, the balance of military and economic power between countries is changing and newly powerful countries want greater influence and to challenge some of the rules in the global architecture established some 70 years ago. That means the rules-based order is being changed, as mentioned by Nick Beasley. No. And who is the challenger? China. Thirdly, the, statement, uh, the policy states, China's 2013 unilateral declaration of an air defense identification zone in the East China Sea caused the tensions to rise. Australia is opposed to any coercive or unilateral actions. Actually, reiterates its position in, uh, in 2013. Now, fourthly, it claims Australia opposes the use of artificial structures in the South China Sea for military purposes. Australia also opposes the assertion of associated territorial claims and maritime rights which are not in, a, in accordance with international law. Australia is particularly, not the last statement, particularly concerned by the unprecedented pace and scale of China's land reclamation activities. Very open. So I totally agree with uh, uh, Professor Nick Bisley's statement. Because driven by the worries, the increasing worries and, 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 and anxiety about the challenge and, and change of the order, the perceived traditional order, rules-based order in this area, the Temple administration is increasingly open and direct in drafting, in describing China, uh, you know, about China. On the basis of the Defence White Paper last year, we may analyse in the following way. First, now, this document, the Defence White Paper, reflects Canberra's assessment that China is no longer willing to accept the predominantly Western rules-based order and that China has become a game changer and a threat or a potential threat 
First, because I put potential within the brackets, because previously the Australian administration used to use the word potential to modify threat, meaning it's not a reality yet. But step by step, and increasingly, the word potential is not used. So now, in the in the minds of many Australians, China has already become a threat. So put it in the in the brackets. So Australia avoids ambiguity in response, as we can see. Um, Tumbo's speech in Shangri-La and also in, in Sydney did, uh, this year, as I will explain later on. And Australia also hopes and practices in encouraging other countries to do the same. As we can see this uh, from the uh, Tumbo's speech of, uh, in the past few months. And then, now let's look at the arbitration issue uh, and the South China Sea as well. Bishop said, China should abide by the, by the decision. It is final and legally binding. And then the immediate response from Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs is, Bishop's assertion is wrong. We hope Australia should firmly abide by the promise not to hold a position when there is a territorial dispute. So, the two sides seem to be tipped for tat. No, uh, has been, uh, both have been playing the game of tit for tat. And then, uh, last year, there was the joint statement of the three nations, Japan, the United States and Australia, TSD, Trilateral Strategic Dialogue, TSD stands for the strategic dialogue between the three nations, which actually initiated in 2002, a long time already, more than 10 years. And at that time, these three nations conclude, you know, conducted their annual meeting. And after the meeting, they released a joint statement. In the joint statement, they claimed the arbitration is final and legally binding on both parties. All right, now let's look at, look at the, the South China Sea issue. China and ASEAN concluded the framework agreement on the code of conduct for the South China Sea, which was actually endorsed in Manila just a few months ago, um, August 6, 2017. The Chinese assessment or evaluation of this framework agreement is that this serves as a step forward in the conflict management in the South China Sea and it forms the basis for further negotiations on the, conduct of, uh, on the Code of Conduct, COC. And both China and ASEAN uh, will push forward negotiations for the, for the conclusion of a formal agreement on C, uh, of COC. And then what is the immediate response from the three nations? Immediately, US, Australia and Japan released a joint statement 
And this joint statement caused ASEAN and China to establish a set of rules that are legally binding, meaningful, effective, and consistent with international law. What does that mean? That means the framework agreement is not enough, doesn't mean much, or some more, more measures have to be taken, more guarantee ha you know, have to be made. You know. uh, anyway, not very positive uh, assessment on the framework. Secondly, it voices strong opposition to coercive unilateral actions that could alter the status quo and increase tensions. That, of course, not directly mention China, but everybody can see it directs at China. And then it urges China and the Philippines. Last, the, the third point is these three nations urge China and the Philippines to abide by last year's international arbitration ruling. Okay, so what is the response of the Chinese media? Not a direct response from the Chinese government, but mainly the, the Chinese uh, scholars. They voiced their view. One scholar published one article in the People's Daily Overseas Edition on August 11th, 2013, uh, uh, 17. The Chinese title is I put it into the English. The Philippines turns away from the arbitration while US, Japan, and Australia bear it in their minds constantly. Now, the, the major point of this article in People's Daily is the joint statement is to create difficulties for China ASEAN cooperative work for the peace in the South China Sea, indicating that these three countries are determined to be troublemakers here. Now, uh, look at a term, troublemakers here. That is the term used by one Chinese commentator. Some Australians, and then directly about Australia, some Australians have a mental disorder which leads to their failure to strike a balance between the United States, their security ally, and China, their number one economic partner, as well as their intention to make use of the South China Sea issue to show Australia's importance and the role in this aspect. I only translate. I only made it a translation. It didn't mean I, you know, completely share this view. All right. <laughs> I don't. I. I don't think this is a healthy phenomenon between the two nations to, to blame, you know, against each other in in this way. And I still remember, you know, a long time ago in two thousand and nine, when there was the uh, Rio Chinaco deal and also Hu Zetai's issue and Australia connected the economic relations with its national security. And then the, the, the Chinese government uh, uh, arrested Hu Zetai. And also one newspaper, Huan Chou Shibao, uh, published one article blaming, labeling Australia as the number nine 
invader against China in 1900 and 1901. This is not healthy because Australia raised connected security with economic relations. Then Huan Chesbao published this article. We, this phenomenon drove a lot of people in both nations worry about the bilateral relations, which is not healthy actually. And then the, the, the case of Osgrid. Well, the, uh, because this is uh, blocked by the Austrian government, so I, I listed here. The Chinese Ministry of Commerce says, Canberra's block of Chinese investment in, uh, in Osgrid testifies the uncertainty of the investment environment in Australia, and it is very discouraging. And then Chinese uh, uh, scholars and media, they, they voiced, this helps create a China phobia and blockades win-win cooperation. Australians needed to be cool-headed, and also the some Chinese commentators labelled this action as political interference in business, because China is very often blamed and criticised by Western commentators as adopting. Or, in, uh, or using political interference in business and cooperative uh, uh, commercial cooperation. So therefore, the Chinese scholars say, can we say this is the Australian political interference in business? Now, look at a Tumbo's speech at Shangri-La on June the 2nd, 2017 which has already been mentioned by Nick. Uh, during this speech, uh, Temple said, the rapid rise of a new power creates anxiety. A coercive China, directly used the word coercive to modify China, a coercive China would find its neighbors resenting demands. They cede their autonomy and strategic space and look to counterweight Beijing's power by bolstering alliances and partnerships between themselves and especially with the United States. Now, again, look at it. By uh, bolstering alliances and partnerships between themselves, small, medium-sized and smaller nations between themselves and with the United States, because Trump is increasingly not interested in taking the responsibility as a leader. So, Australia, Japan still hope to win the United States back, to, to, to encourage the United States to continue its domination here, to continue its leadership. Do not step back from its leading position. But at the same time, Australia also expects that other nations medium-sized and smaller nations can also work in cooperation in dealing with the China rise. So, partnerships, alliances between themselves as well. Now, it reminds me of uh, the Australian uh, attempt in the 1960s. Uh, soon after 
uh, Harold Holt took office in 1966. He went, he paid visits to many places, many ancient you know, places, including Taiwan. And he also cherished the idea or the, the hope for the collective actions between medium-sized and smaller nations in competing or fighting against the, the communist movement in Asia. At the same time, he was very loyal to the United States. And he even shot the slogan of all the way with LBJ. But he didn't forget the role that can be played by medium-sized and smaller countries in the region. That was in 1960s. And today, Tumble seems doing the same thing. All right. Some fear, Tumble continues to say, some fear that China will seek to impose a latter-day Monroe Doctrine on this hemisphere in order to dominate the region, marginalizing the role and contribution of other nations, in particular the United States. Thirdly, China will best succeed by re uh, respecting the sovereignty of others and in so doing build a reservoir of trust and cooperation with its neighbors. Of course, this is a lecturing on China. All right, China has been lectured by many countries. Okay, but the point is that many Chinese commentators, ordinary people as well, they have their complaints. They say, what, what has China done wrongly? What rules does China not follow? What rules is being challenged? What rules are being challenged by China? Um, is China taking not taking a positive role? If say now commentators in China they listed many things China has been doing in cooperation with the international community and sometimes individually as well. Now, voices and articles in China, they argued that China contributed increasingly more to the UN, United Nations peace, peacekeeping program. China continuously to provide more economic assistance to many other developing nations. When China, uh, you know, is facing uh, the competition or, or, or sometimes uh, debate or, with, or trouble with uh, neighboring nations. China never forgets to emphasize that we expect to solve the issues by peaceful means. When India, for instance, the in, a few months ago, when Indian soldiers entered the Chinese territory, the Chinese soldiers, Chinese troops, exercised the restraint. Can we say a country like China is practicing hegemony? Can we say a country like China is pursuing domination in the region? So 
Chinese commentators, analysts, and ordinary people as well, they also have their blames and complaints. So we need to exchange ideas and views with the international world and to tell them, to, to listen to them, at the same time, ask them to listen to the Chinese people, to, to actually uh, drive away misunderstandings between China and other, other countries. Well, Tumble, uh, at this time, in Sydney, during his speech, he said, China has the greatest leverage over the North Korean regime, and with that leverage comes the greater responsibility. Further economic sanctions were needed to be imposed on North Korea because Tumble, Canberra, expects China to, Im to impose the oil embargo on North Korea to stop the supply of oil to North Korea. All right, now, Huan Chou creatively termed by some Australian commentators as some Australians named it Huai Chou Shibao, not Huan Chou Shibao. Huai meaning bad, all right? Yeah. And then Huan Chou Shibao published article blaming this and also mentioned Tambu's telephone conversation with Trump. Now let's look at a Tambu Trump phone conversation. Uh, in January 2017. Tom said, I do believe that you will never find a better friend to the United States than Australia. Now, you compare Tambo's speech about China with his statement, with his conversation with Trump. What is, we can see the sharp difference. We can see the loyalty of Australia to the United States, even though the United States is uh, showing less interest in the regional role, in the regional leadership. And then he also said, this is a big deal, I think we should re respect the deals. The deals meaning the intake of refugees from Australia to the United States. Uh, but that deal was not concluded when uh, uh, Trump, uh, Trump was the uh, president. It concluded when Obama was the US president. And Trump's response was, I spoke to Putin, Mokul, Abe, to France today. This was my most unpleasant call. Most unpleasant call. Uh, why have you not let them into your society? It is good for you, but it is bad for me. It was a stupid deal. Stupid deal, horrible deal, disgusting deal. So many modifiers. To, de to describe a deal which is seen by Tumble, uh, Tumble as a respectful deal, as a deal that should be respected. Will you see that Chinese leaders will speak with any leaders, any other leaders of other countries in this way? Never. We have never seen this. That's the difference. And the forthcoming uh, foreign policy white paper, I think in two days' time, right, will be released. I think, that, I also believe that the views about China will be nearly the same as, as the views included in the Defence White Paper. Now, from the 
two plus two meeting between Australia and Japan this year about the U.S. Still, these two nations ask U.S. persuade the U.S. to continue its leadership about South China Sea and North uh, East China Sea. The same view as previous uh, views. The conclusion. The growth of Australia's long-standing strategic concern that China's rising economic power will challenge America's predominance in the region and reshape the regional strategic architecture. And this uh, warrior has been producing repeated uh, fluctuations to their relations, and it calls for a crucial need for a broader understructure. The, uh, the understructure is not broad enough. It's called calls for a broader understructure and a substantial growth of mutual understanding, mutual trust and mutual understanding, very important. In order to cope with the current challenges, Canberra can learn something from Keating's success in balancing relations and also how the post-9-11 success for dealing with the two nations without, without offending either the United States or China. Certainly, Canberra may have developed an idea that it's a strengthened economic relationship with China benefits both sides and it won't be seriously affected by Canberra's backing of the United States and the region or by Canberra's critical stance on China's regional diplomacy and domestic system. I think this idea can jeopardize the robust and complementary economic relations and it, it has to be corrected. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Professor Ho, for your very informative uh, historical and also a contemporary uh, 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 study of uh, China-Australia relations in all these years. So the next speaker is uh, Jim, Jim Leibold, James Leibold. Okay, Professor Leibold is a long-term friend of East China Norm University, and he's going to talk about also something quite uh, interesting. <laughs> interesting. Sensitive, uh, slightly controversial, um, but uh, we're all friends here. Um, yeah, first I want to uh, thank the Australian Studies uh, Center here at ECNU and, and La Trobe Asia for um, putting together this morning's event and inviting me to make a few remarks on this really important topic, but uh, as I noted before, also one that's a little bit sensitive. And as um, uh, Chen noted, uh, you know, La Trobe and UCNU have had a very long, very rich history together, 30 plus years, collaboration built on many friendships, shared memories and collective ambitions. And in light of that relationship, I want to um, speak frankly uh, this morning in the spirit of kind of robust academic exchange. Um, you know, I, I think both the presentations by Nick and uh, Professor Ho have kind of pointed out that there are some cracks that are beginning to emerge in the heretofore bipartisan relationship between Australia and China. Um, you know, China's continued economic rise and Australia's deepening embrace of that rise uh, has really deeply complicated the relationship in the last decade. Uh, since relations were normalized in 1972, uh, China has undergone the most dramatic transformation the world has ever seen. It's uh, one that's been welcomed across the globe for both the wealth and prosperity that it's generated. Um, yet, uh, it has also fundamentally uh, 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 shaped or reshaped the balance of power between the two relations, uh, two, two, two countries. So if you just look at the, the relative size of the economy back in 1972, 
the Chinese economy was only double that of Australia. Uh, today, it's now 10 times as large. Uh, China, as was already pointed out, accounts for about a quarter of our, uh, Australia's two-way trade, a quarter of all international tourist dollars, and about 30% of our international student uh, market. So some in Australia started uh, to question whether we've become too dependent on, a, uh, on China. Over the um, last uh, year, uh, as uh, I'm sure you're all well, well aware, the Australian public has been debating the evolving nature of the bilateral uh, relationship in its future direction. Some uh, have even raised uh, fear about a, a growing Chinese influence in Australia. There are those such as um, ANU professor Hugh White who argue that uh, we need to be willing to compromise our values uh, uh, and, and accommodate a rising China in order to avoid conflict, if not uh, actual war with China. Others, uh, such as Professor Clive Hamilton, who's working on a, a new book about the relationship, believe that uh, Australia needs to confront China and to stand up for its values rather than to capitulate and appease China. He even uses a metaphor that um, is, is quite sensationalist about uh, the, uh, the English uh, backing down to Nazi Germany in 1938. And of course, I think we'd all agree that uh, China is no Nazi Germany. Uh, and it goes to some of that sensationalism that uh, Chen was talking about, which is, I, th I think, very problematic. Others, uh, such as our former foreign minister, Bob Carr, believe that the debate is not only unnecessary, but actually dangerous to our national interests. He claims that Australia is in danger of being, quote, hung out to dry, unquote, if we listen to the uh, war hawks on China. Many, uh, as Nick pointed out, many rightfully point out that uh, any discussion of Chinese influence in Australia can often lead to irrational and xenophobic fears about a kind of new yellow horde or the danger of uh, so-called reds under the bed. Um, uh, you know, we can't afford to push this ugly history, and it is an ugly history, of racism in Australia under the rug. We need to uh, acknowledge it. Uh, you know, it's still a problem. Uh, but at the same time, I really think it's important that we don't allow it to shut down uh, or, or impede with this debate. Now, in my opinion, I'll put my cards on the table. I think this debate is uh, necessary and actually crucial to Australia's future as a free society and a prosperous nation. The debate touches on um, two of the key parts of Australia's national interest and its national story. Our much celebrated multicultural society and our at times poorly appreciated democratic values. Now when people like myself uh, raise concerns about Chinese influence in Australia, what are some of the key issues uh, that they're concerned with? And Nick touched on some of these, but I'll just reiterate them very quickly. There's concern over uh, political donations by wealthy Chinese businessmen with close ties to the Chinese Communist Party and attempts to push Australian policy in a direction more favorable to the party's interests. There's concerns about the interference of the embassy and consulate staff in local elections and community affairs, where it closely monitors and at times seeks to manipulate the Chinese-Australian community in a particular way. There are concerns about the purchase of critical national infrastructure and assets, uh, the Darwin port being one example, Osgrid that uh, Professor Ho uh, talked about, uh, to companies with uh, close links uh, to the Chinese party state. There is also concerns about the changing Australian 
mediascape, uh, the way in which uh, the Chinese media, Chinese language media in particular in Australia, tends to speak with the same voice as the propaganda department uh, in Beijing. And finally, there are concerns about growing influence of the Chinese Communist Party and its agents on our publicly funded national universities. So this morning, I want to um, zero in on one really concrete example as a way to illustrate some of the concerns, but as well as the complexities involved here. It's the situation of the University of Technology at Sydney, and in particular, it's the Australia-China Relations Institute, or ACRI, as I will refer to it. Uh, I agree with both Chen and Ho that um, there's a great deal of media sensationalism here. And I think, you know, I'm not a journalist, I'm an academic, which hopefully buys me a little bit more time to be a bit more careful about uh, what I say and how I go about my research. So I think it's really important that we have, you know, kind of evidence-based investigations and that we choose our words very carefully. Uh, so I want to look uh, in the remaining of the time at the, the issue uh, of UTS. Now, Australian universities really have gotten themselves into a, a big pickle, in my opinion. Uh, for a whole range of reasons, uh, both uh, you know, Nick and I deal with our universities on a daily basis, and I believe uh, that uh, a lot of universities uh, have become over-dependent on the China market. Now, this dependency has emerged over the last uh, decade, if not more, due uh, against the backdrop of declining federal investment in the tertiary education sector. So over the last decade, the, the amount of federal funding that goes directly to our universities has been declining on a year-on-year -year basis. And the government actually now contributes less than the OECD national average uh, in terms of tertiary education funding. So where, uh, what's keeping universities afloat? Well, they are being kept afloat literally by the uh, income brought in by international student fees. So if we look at uh, UTS, so UTS is a, a, a relatively uh, young new university, only established in 1988. But it's also now uh, ranked uh, by the Shanghai, I think Shanghai Jiao Tong Index as the highest performing university in Australia under 50. It's uh, a large university with over 40,000 uh, students, uh, and it now receives uh, just over 50% of its funding from the federal government and Australian taxpayers. So the remaining of its, uh, a remainder of its operating uh, expenditures come from full fee paying international students philanthropic donations, and research consultancies. So nearly 30% of all students at UTS uh, are full-fee paying international students, uh, with the vast majority, and I haven't been able to find exact figures, but the vast majority of those come from the People's Republic of China. And in 2016, that generated the university nearly a billion dollars in income. It, uh, that same year, the university also brought in uh, $67 million in research funding Again, with much of that money uh, coming from research partnerships with China. Um, in my opinion, this kind of growing dependency, there's a clear dependency here on China at UTS, has clouded uh, the judgment of some of its senior university administrators, putting UTS's impartiality and reputation at risk, and fundamentally altering the way the university speaks about China. So let's take, for example, the creation of the Australia-China Relations Institute in 2014. So earlier that year, the university made a decision to uh, stop funding an independent center for rigorous and at time quite critical research on China. Uh, that was led by a very well-respected 
uh, a Chinese historian. At that same time, uh, a gentleman named Liu Mian, who's pictured here uh, in, in the slide above, uh, who was a former third secretary at the Chinese consulate in Sydney, uh, and now the vice president of global partnerships at UTS, he helped to broker a series of deals with uh, a range of Chinese businessmen as well as companies that raised nearly $6 million uh, for the establishment of the Australia-China Relations Institute. One of these um, businessmen that uh, Chen has already mentioned, Mr. Huang Shangmo, is a PRC citizen and an Australian permanent resident. Uh, he showed up in Australia in late 2012 uh, rather suddenly uh, after the uh, Chinese Communist Party's anti-corruption watchdog uh, began to round up his key political patrons back in Guangdong. After arriving in Australia, Mr. Huang became the chairman of the Australia-China Council for the Peaceful Reunification of China, or the He Hui in Chinese. So the He Hui is a branch of the Beijing-based China Council for the Promotion of Peaceful National Reunification, and it reports directly to the United Front Work Department of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, Mr. Huang and other associates of the He Hui in Australia have donated uh, almost $6 million to major political parties in Australia, according to a report compiled by the Australian Parliamentary Library. Now, despite frequently rubbing shoulders with our Australian Prime Ministers, and I think he's pictured here with all our recent ones, um, 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 he, uh, Mr. Mr. Huang laments uh, the Chinese community's lack of experience when it comes to participating in politics and having its voice heard in Australia, uh, asserting that the Australian Chinese community are regarded as cash cows, yet they exert very little influence over the political process. Yet this didn't stop Mr. Huang from trying to do this, and to some extent succeeding in his aim to influence the Australian political process. Uh, as the uh, ABC Fairfax Media investigative report that uh, Chen talked about revealed, or asserted, maybe is a better word, uh, Mr. Huang attempted to use the promise of a $40,000 donation as leverage to pressure the Australian Labour Party into alterating, alterating its position on the South China Sea conflict. One of its uh, members, uh, Senator Sam Destiari, even held a press conference beside Mr. Huang where he declared that the South China Sea's uh, uh, issue was Beijing's concern and that the Australian government should remain neutral in the dispute. Um, as has been reported, Senator Destiari was later forced to resign his cabinet position after it was revealed that he allowed Mr. Huang and another Chinese businessman to pay his legal and travel bills. In fact, in 2015, uh, the Australian, uh, Australia's top spy agency, the uh, Australian Security Intelligence Agency, or ASIO, warned Australia's major political parties about the uh, suspicious intentions of Mr. Huang and another Australian-Chinese millionaire, Chuck Chao Wing, uh, and their, quote, deep but opaque connections to the Chinese Communist Party, unquote. Despite claims, um, uh, sorry, uh, meanwhile, back at... Um, at ACRI, following uh, Mr. Huang's donation of $1.8 million to ACRI, he uh, became an adjunct professor at UTS uh, and uh, chairman of ACRI's advisory board. Then he, uh, in his own words, uh, personally appointed 
former Foreign Minister Bob Carr as the director of ACRI. Despite claims that uh, it is a, quote, independent, nonpartisan research think tank, ACRI has been plagued by controversy since its establishment. In my opinion, this is, this is my opinion of my own assessment of their research, uh, uh, it, it, right, uh, ACRI's research output is patchy at best, with far more examples of blatant political advocacy rather than rigorous independent research. Now, it has produced a handful of uh, high-quality research reports by very respected Australian academics, including my colleague over here, Professor Bisley. But uh, if you look at the full uh, body of their work, um, it, there, we find far more examples of one-sided, decontextualized fact sheets and opinion pieces aimed at promoting what ACRI's own website uh, used to refer to, until quite recently, a positive and optimistic view of the Australia-China relations. Um, now, the relationship, as I think has become quite clear uh, here today through our discussion, is a complicated one. And I believe if we iron out those complexities, we can be left with an incomplete and potentially misleading picture. Far more concerning, in my opinion, however, is the way that UTS's brand is being used in private by Mr. Huang and Mr. Carr to add legitimacy to their public advocacy work on behalf of China. Now, most of ACRI's activities actually happen behind closed doors and largely out of the purview of the Australian public. In his capacity as director of ACRI, Bob Carr frequently meets with visiting Chinese Communist Party officials. These visits are not reflected on ACRI's uh, website, but are widely reported in the Chinese language media. For example, in 2015, uh, uh, Mr. Carr met with uh, Zhu Weichun, pictured here, uh, one of the chief architects of the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to demonize the Dalai Lama and to promote the assimilation of ethnic minorities inside of China. When um, uh, the party's minister of propaganda uh, visited, uh, Mr. Liu Qibo visited Australia in, 19, uh, in 2016, uh, uh, Mr. Carr participated in a roundtable, uh, so-called dialogue with uh, Sinologists in Australia that was widely reported in the Chinese language media, but one unmentioned in Australia. And by the way, I didn't get an invitation, uh, sadly. Uh, I'm not sure why. <laughs> That's why I'm bitter, right? Um, um, you know, ACRI is also, um, uh, according the uh, the Australian mainstream media, it signed a partnership, uh, a public MOU with uh, Xinhua News Agency. And it is now sending uh, Australian-based journalists on all-expense-paid propaganda junkets uh, to China. Uh, when they return to Australia, it is hoped, in the words of Xinhua, that they will, quote, objectively transmit China's voice, uh, unquote, back to the Australian public through mainstream media outlets. So what is the big deal, you ask, right? Um, these efforts to promote Chinese soft power and influence in Australia are understandable. And I, you know, I appreciate that. You know, public diplomacy is a key part of international relations today. States have long sought to increase their influence globally. Uh, Australia does this in China. China does this in Australia. No big deal. Yet I question whether public advocacy, ab advocacy groups like ACRI belong inside our universities. The University of Technology Sydney is a public institution that is still predominantly funded by Commonwealth government with the uh, money of Australian taxpayers. 
uh, it risks in undermining the neutrality and impartiality of our universities at a time when the relationship uh, with China is reaching a critical juncture. We also risk using our money and our talent to advance China's national interests rather than our own. Scientists at UTS are collaborating with Chinese military researchers on surveillance, quantum computing, AI technologies, and they're doing it with Australian-funded uh, research money from the Australian, uh, Australia Research Council. UTS recently signed um, four new research uh, partnership agreements in China that were worth $31 million. This included 50 scholarships to train PRC students in AI and Internet of Things technologies uh, in collaboration with the Hangzhou-based uh, surveillance uh, company Broadlink. UTS has also created a $20 million joint research center with the China Electronics uh, Group Corporation, one of uh, China's top military industrial groups with close links to both the party state as well as its security apparatuses. Together with Australian researchers at UTS, CETC will be working on a range of new technologies, uh, some of them which have potential dual-use technologies at the forefront of China's military modernization and increasingly sophisticated surveillance apparatuses. So in my opinion, this again raises uh, serious questions about whether Australian taxpayer-funded uh, uh, money, research money, as well as our universities are somehow complicit in the development of new tools for increasing the party's control and surveillance regime over its own people here in China. Now these are difficult, sensitive, but yet important questions. And, and as um, has become quite clear here today, they're beginning to be asked in Australia as well as in other parts of the world. They are likely to result in changes uh, to the Australian law, including a requirement that any foreign agents register themselves in the name of public transparency, as well as the banning of any donations by non-citizens. Um, the problem of how to deal with a rising China a country that, in my opinion, doesn't share the same values as most Australians, isn't going away, going away anytime soon. I don't think we can brush this challenge to the bilateral relationship under the rug, nor do I feel that we can, of course, we can't turn our back on China. Rather, we need to examine all aspects of the relationship in a rational, frank, evidence-based fashion, debating the implications of China's going out strategy for our own national interests, as well as China and its global ambitions. In order to do this, I think it's crucial that we have independent centers for the study of China at our universities, where properly trained academics can uh, freely examine all aspects of China's rise, the good, the bad, the indifferent, without fear or favor. Finally, I want to suggest, and this might be a little bit controversial, that um, uh, China does itself, uh, uh, sorry, China doesn't do itself any good by being perceived as a bully or a hegemon internationally. Uh, as a victim of foreign imperialism, China and the Chinese people understand the sensitivities surrounding any meddling in another country's affairs. Non-interference has uh, long been a cornerstone of China's foreign policy. Uh, the China dream, while potentially positive for the people of China and the world, isn't necessarily the same as the Australian dream, nor why should it be. Our complementary and intertwined economies might put us in the same bed, but uh, we can still have different uh, aspirations and different values. That said, I think we all have a kind of shared destiny 
and managing this important bilateral relationship for the mutual benefit of both the Australian and Chinese people. So thank you very much.